What we ought to do is have clear guardrails. The securities laws, the banking laws, these were not written to accommodate cryptocurrencies. Nobody begun to imagine this innovation at the time that the legislation governing the SEC and all the other regulators for that matter was written. And so we really should provide a framework. Congress should step in and say, here's a sensible way that we can go about regulating stable coins. Here's a sensible way that we ought to think about exchanges. We ought to do that systematically. And if we did, then we'd provide the certainty. And I think we would flourish. This episode is sponsored by Nexo.io and Quantstamp. Money is changing. So where do we go from here? Through high-profile interviews and thought-provoking analysis, join Michael Casey and Sheila Warren for the Money Reimagined podcast as they explore the connection between finance, human culture, and our increasingly digital lives. And just a reminder, Coindesk is a news source and does not provide investment advice. And now, here's Michael Casey. Hello and welcome to Money Reimagined. I'm Michael Casey. If you're as nerdily into digital assets, blockchain, and the related debates over policy as we are, there's no way you could forget last summer's congressional battle over the crypto tax amendment that was inserted into the infrastructure bill. Now, if you're a normal person, you're forgiven for not knowing what I'm talking about. Basically, a provision was inserted into the $1.2 trillion infrastructure bill that would require so-called brokers to provide information on users of cryptocurrency to the Internal Revenue Service to increase tax collections on transactions. The industry rose up out of great concern that that would take surveillance of individuals and businesses to a new level. It was also concerned that the language defining reporting obligations was so broad that it would quash innovation in this space. What was impressive was that a solid number of senators from both sides of politics shared those concerns and pushed for amendments to soften the language. Our guest today is one of the three who took the lead at that time, Senator Pat Toomey of Pennsylvania, who joined forces with Senators Ron Wyden, a Democrat from Oregon, and Cynthia Lummis, a Republican from Wyoming, to propose a sensible amendment. Ultimately, their efforts failed, as a motion to consider the amendment required unanimous support, and a single senator blocked that motion. But the moment has nonetheless been looked upon as one in which a new level of awareness took hold in Washington and in which bipartisan support for this technology took deeper roots. We'll ask Senator Toomey to reflect back on that moment and then get him to offer his forward-looking thoughts on where policy towards issues such as stablecoins and token investing is headed. We'll also ask him to define what he sees as the leadership role for the U.S., at this critical moment in regards to this technology. But before the Senator joins us, let's call in my co-host, Sheila Warren. Hi, Sheila. Hey, Michael. So, Sheila, I think we probably should just acknowledge the fact that you now no longer work for the World Economic Forum, but instead work for the Crypto Council on Innovation, which brings you into the contact with people like uh, Senator Toomey in, in terms That's of you know, grappling with policy. Yeah, I have taken this new role. It's about one month in, almost to the day and took the role in part because I thought it was such a critical time for policy. We discuss on the show all the time that if we don't get policy right, then the ability we have to innovate, especially here from the United States, is going to be severely limited. So definitely grateful to Senator Toomey for his leadership and looking forward to hearing about both the path that came behind and you know, where we're headed next. Fantastic. All right. So let's bring in the Senator. Nice to see you, Senator Toomey. Thanks for joining us. Thanks very much for having me. So 
What I think I'd like you to do is just reflect back. It's now some time. I mean, crypto time, as we often say on this show, moves very fast. And so this seems like yeah. eons ago that this, uh, yeah. this bill was before Congress and that there was a de debate. But as I said, it seemed like a turning point for some of us who'd never seen this level of engagement before amongst lawmakers like yourself. And I think one of the things that was so striking, as I mentioned in my monologue, was the bipartisan nature of the support for that amendment. So I'd just like you to weigh in on that. How is crypto perceived? on the Hill? Is it seen as a Republican issue? Is it seen as a Democrat one? Is there a coming together? Or is it one of those rare things that is not so politicized in this country? Well, that's a great question, Sarah. It is not as polarized as most of the issues that we deal with, although there are some signs of some polarization. It also is different in the House than it is in the Senate. So believe it or not, it's still relatively new to most members of Congress. And I really think there's an opportunity to try to find some common ground before this does get too polarized and become really, really difficult. It was interesting last summer when the uh, language first came out, and you have to keep in mind the process by which the infrastructure bill was written is not a conventional legislative process, by which I mean going through hearings and then a, a markup in committee where there's a great deal of transparency. That's the ideal process for developing legislation. This wasn't being done that this way for a variety of reasons. And when the language came out, I was stunned and so were my staff, mostly because the point you made about just how broadly written it was. It became immediately clear that whoever wrote this it's not really familiar with this space. And what I'm referring to is the notion that we would put reporting requirements on people who would have no ability to comply with them. So a validator, uh, you know, miners or stakers who wouldn't have any way of knowing who is the person behind a particular transaction that they're validating. But nevertheless, you could very reasonably conclude that the way the language was drafted, it would apply to them. So we got engaged immediately. And then interestingly, one of the guys early on was Ron Wyden, who um, I think he approaches this with a really big focus on privacy. And that's part of his brand, right? He's, he's concerned about consumer privacy in many realms. And so it made sense for him to be concerned here. You had Cynthia Lummis, who's just very interested and very knowledgeable in this space as well. And then Mark Warner, who I worked with a lot to get to language that we could get the Treasury to sign off on, because if the administration hadn't supported a particular product, then it was very unlikely that we would get it across the goal line. So we had people who came together for different reasons. And then once we had mostly reached an agreement among ourselves on something that we thought was workable in terms of limiting the definition of who'd be subject to this reporting requirement, we then went to the authors of the bill and Rob Portman, the Republican from Ohio, and Kirsten Sinema, the Democrat from Arizona. They were the, the lead authors from you know, the two respective parties, and they were totally open. Basically, their attitude was, we recognize this language is flawed. If you guys can work out a bipartisan way to fix it, we'll be with you. And they were. And so we ended up really with very broad support. Don't know for sure that it was unanimous, but I think it's fair to say that it was extremely broad. And then as you pointed out, Michael, it was really a, a procedural hurdle that we had. And the objection that we got that prevented us from offering the amendment wasn't on substance at all. It was a process amendment that was on an unrelated matter. So the exercise failed in the end to get the legislative outcome, but it was very, very constructive in a lot of ways, elevating people's awareness, uh, energizing the community, the whole ecosystem to weigh in on this. 
Uh, we found uh, allies, folks who would be interested in making sure we didn't make a dumb mistake that would stifle innovation in this really interesting place. So we actually learned a lot from the exercise, even though our work's not done even in that narrow sense. Well, Senator, that moment is considered a wake-up call by the industry as well. And I think that a lot of actors in the crypto ecosystem who had, I think, naively underestimated the influence of policy and rulemaking on the ways and trajectory of this technology and the applications built thereon, I think really had their eyes opened and realized that we do need to be paying more attention. And so we've seen a lot of mobilization, I would call it, of resources in Washington, more willingness to have these kinds of conversations. And I'm curious if you're seeing that as well from your side, and if your colleagues in the Senate in particular are feeling that, if they're feeling that there's more willingness on the part of industry to engage, or even if kind of the approach that your colleagues and others on the Hill are taking to being educated is different as a result of all the activity that happened around this bill? Yeah, I think the answer is yes, there is more interest. And, you know, in the Senate, we get pulled in too many directions. You get spread very thin. It's hard to devote the time and energy to get up to speed on something that's really new and different unless you have a, a real personal interest. But this battle that we had last summer, it piqued people's interest. And so I've had a lot of conversations with colleagues who do want to understand better. They want to learn more. A number are coming to a dinner I'm hosting tonight for this very purpose. So I think there's definitely more engagement, certainly, than I've ever seen, and I'm very encouraged by that. Nexo is the go-to platform for all things crypto. Invest in the hottest coins out there and start earning risk-free interest of up to 20% APR, paid out daily. Need cash ASAP but don't want to sell? Use your crypto as collateral and receive a credit line at premium rates. Open your Nexo account by March 31st and receive up to a $100 welcome bonus. Get started today at Nexo.io. That's N-E-X-O.io. Quantstamp is hiring. Join the leading blockchain security company and help us secure the future of Web3. Working for QuantStamp means a fully remote, flexible environment where creativity and effectiveness are valued. Our clients include projects like Ethereum 2.0, OpenSea, Maker, Aave, and Axie Infinity, and we offer compensation packages on par with big tech. Learn more at quantstamp.com careers. That's quantstamp.com careers. So let's say more about that, because I think that in addition to just the recognition that crypto, it has something for everyone to the points that you noted about your colleagues from across the spectrum politically who were drawn to this and who saw something of value in it and something to defend and protect and promote, I think. Uh, so in addition to that, though, I imagine that there is just broader awareness about the impact of this industry, just the sheer growth engine it can be for the United States. Uh, what are you seeing as the main points of interest of engagement from the Hill in particular? So it varies, right? And there's a big range of views on this. And, and I, I have to say, I think in, in many cases, you know, we're all still trying to understand this better and understand where it leads to and, uh, and the implications. But there's certainly this notion that disintermediation, the ability to do peer-to-peer -peer exchanges, the ability to dramatically lower the costs of financial transactions, to have greater access there's this intrigue of like a, a sort of populist, in, in the best sense of the word, benefits that could come from this technology that are, that are already starting. There are also people who are really afraid of it. There are people who think that you know, crypto is going to be used by bad guys to circumvent uh, existing rules and regulations and maybe as a way to 
uh, subvert sanctions and other security concerns. Then there's people who look at it from a sort of competitive point of view. Wait a minute, like the Chinese already have a central bank digital currency, and we hear they're rolling this out. And is that going to give them capabilities to displace the dollar as the dominant currency of international uh, exchange? And if so, what should we do about that? Do we need a central bank digital dollar? Can stable coins play that role in the United States? There's just so many different aspects of this that it piques people's interest in different ways. So thankfully, you've just teased out two of the big things we want to talk about, this sort of geopolitical state of this and, you know, really where it fits into the Chinese position and, and others as well. And of course, we have this big issue related to it, of course, with regards to the, the problem with Russia and Ukraine. But I just want to just like focus a little bit on the, the question of how the U.S. is perceived or is being treated as a center for innovation in this space with regards to this. Because the legacy of that bill is still that there are a lot of burdens in this country. The 1099B reporting challenges that we've reported on here are a sort of a legacy of that infrastructure bill. But more than that, there's so many other areas in which I think people in the crypto industry feel as if the United States is oh. somewhat burdensome. So how do you feel about the United States' capacity to compete with regards to innovation in this space, including against China? First of all, I can't state enough how important it is that we have an atmosphere that encourages entrepreneurship and innovation in this space. I don't know for sure, but my gut tells me this is going to transform probably first the internet and finance and then probably much of our economy. And so I want the United States to be leading that effort. It's not just about the direct, tremendous number of jobs and opportunity and uh, investments that will be possible, but it's also about sort of establishing the protocols and the rules and the processes that will help Americans and that will, that will reflect our values around the world. So I think it's extremely important. My biggest worry right now is that in the absence of some kind of good constructive legislative framework, we're sort of inviting regulators to compete with each other to see, to see if they can grab hold of the power to regulate this. And look, I mean, I, I don't think it's any secret. I've been uh, at serious disagreements with the chairman of the SEC, Gary Gensler, a very, very intelligent, capable guy. But he's suggesting that maybe all cryptocurrencies are securities, maybe not Bitcoin, but certainly or likely all the others. Well, that has a chilling effect just by taking that position, because, of course, you've got developers who are in various states of, of development of new protocols and, and applications. And they have to wake up in the morning worried about whether the SEC is going to determine that they're in violation of securities laws. So my point in all this is what we ought to do is have clear guardrails. The securities laws, the banking laws, these were not written to accommodate cryptocurrencies. Nobody begun to imagine this innovation at the time that the legislation governing the SEC and all the other regulators for that matter was written. And so we really should provide a framework. Congress should step in and say, well, here's a sensible way that we can go about regulating stable coins. Here's a sensible way that we ought to think about exchanges, for instance. We ought to do that systematically. And if we did, then we'd provide the certainty. And, and I think we would flourish and we would be the source of innovation. We really have been so far, but increasingly I'm hearing that people in this ecosystem are finding other jurisdictions to be safer or maybe more friendly. And that worries me a lot. I, I want to see us change that. And it's so interesting, Senator, because of course, 
We focus a lot on financial services here in this country, but as you noted, crypto has applications across a variety of different industries and, and applications beyond financial services and beyond the question of how we regulate that aspect of it, which of course is, is quite important. And so it's been interesting watching the agency battle for dominance because of course this thing does not fit cleanly. I think it very clearly does not fit cleanly within any existing regulatory framework, nor within the mandate of any particular body. And so it's going to be I think necessarily coordination among these agencies uh, that we're going to have to see if we're going to truly accommodate the trajectory of the innovation and the potential innovation that we could actually see here. What are your thoughts on that? Not coordination, I would say. And and how likely is that? And you touched on the challenges there, of course. Well, you know, that's where legislation can come in. You know, if Congress defines something as a security, then the SEC has to follow that definition if we exclude something and say this is not a security, then likewise that follows. But I think we need to provide that guidance. I'll give you an example of the kind of concerns that I have in the absence of uh, proper legislation. I'm sure you saw the president's working group paper on stablecoins that came out last fall. I'm glad that they're doing this work. I'm glad they're giving this a lot of thought. But they come to some conclusions that strike me as not the right conclusions. You know, the idea that a stablecoin issuer has to be an insured depository institution. Why would that be? Uh, I mean, I'm fine with insured depository institutions having the legal authority to issue a stablecoin, but a lot of stablecoin issuers might have a model that's not much like a bank at all, in which case why require them to be a bank and to be regulated as such? That doesn't make sense to me. It seems to me a, a more sensible approach would be to look at the the model of the stablecoin. For instance, how does it maintain its stability? Is it done by a one-for-one backing with a fiat currency like the dollar, or is it done through a pool of securities, or is it done algorithmically in in ways that change the supply? These are three very different approaches. And to say that every one of them has to be an insured depository institution, I think we're really risking uh, limiting the kind of innovation that would be very, very constructive. So Congress could step in. And and so I put out a series of proposals, for instance, about how we might think about this, give uh, the industry and the innovators some choices in which model they would pursue and how they would be regulated accordingly. We could have some uniform conditions. For instance, we could say, I think reasonably, that if you want to be a stablecoin issuer, you have to disclose how you are backing that coin and exactly what you're holding. We ought to have uh, redemption rules that are transparent and well understood by people who would buy these instruments. And, and we could talk about other things as well. But I, I think if we don't do anything in Congress, there's a danger that regulators and the administration will just move in with solutions that may not be optimal. It's been interesting. Michael and I are of the mind, and I think many in the industry are, this is the new internet. This is really a transformative, sweeping technology. And so model that's been proposed is comprehensive legislation, not unlike the 1996 Telecoms Act. Uh, Do you think that that is the trajectory here and the right approach? And that would include, of course, an overhaul of, you know, centuries-old security laws and and other features of the legal landscape that currently exists for for money and investing and all all these kinds of activities. What is your take on all that? Yeah, in an ideal world, uh, that would make a lot of sense, but that's a huge, huge thing to try to undertake. And given how difficult it is to legislate in Washington these days, given how challenging this space is, because it is unfamiliar to most members of Congress, uh, my gut tells me we have a better chance of success if we went incrementally. So if we took 
say, a, a slice of this ecosystem. And we came up with a sensible framework, stable coins being an example where it's just one category, but it's a really important category. And in some ways, it's simpler to understand for a lot of people than some other developments. My intuition is it's better to start smaller rather than try to have one giant comprehensive bill that could really get bogged down. What I like about that approach, I must say, or if I may, is that it, it allows us to accommodate the, the scope of the innovation. And so we're not assuming the entire thing. We're not saying, here's where this, this is going to wind up, and, and we're not limiting it, therefore. We're saying, there are innovations here. There's going to be things that happen here that we cannot possibly predict or foresee because right. of the nature of this technology. So uh, that, that's, that's very helpful and interesting to hear your perspective on that. Thank you, Senator. You know, Senator, I, was, I started the, my monologue talking about sort of being nerdily interested in, you know, blockchains and digital assets. And that's the I way that we I didn't know that are. was a word, by the way. <laughs> nerdly? Yeah, I, I think nerdly, I, I, if, 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 I think the, the <laughs> adverb of nerd is indeed nerdly. I can, I'll have to yeah. sort of it's discuss this with well. you later. Nerd out Duly, a lot. Duly noted. Yes. <laughs> but the, the other area that I think I'm a bit of a nerd before getting into crypto was the international monetary system. You know, it has been quite astounding for me to be in the midst of this discovery around crypto right now to have front and center a conversation going on around whether or not the Bretton Woods system, the, I suppose people at the second version of Bretton Woods, the post-1971 version of that, is now up for grabs, right? And referring specifically to the fact that Russia is being cut off essentially from that system, that there may be an alliance with China around this, and that at a moment when we have crypto as, if not a perfect solution, the pathway perhaps to an alternative, that there is a real challenge underway. And it was stunning today to see Credit Suisse come out with a, a research report, essentially saying that we are now entering to Bretton Woods 3 as a result of this moment. Is this hyperbole? I mean, are we at a, a turning point? And, and how important is it that as we consider things like stablecoin legislation, which I'm very glad to see you talking openly about. We're also thinking about the future of the monetary system that we can't necessarily take for granted that this US leadership, the dollar's leadership, will be around forever. Yeah, so this is a big, really fascinating and really important discussion. Uh, I would argue that the dominance of the dollar as the world's leading reserve currency, as the currency in which such an overwhelming majority of trade is denominated, is our most powerful non-military tool that we have. We need to be real careful how we use it. And I think you could make the case that sometimes there's been a tendency to overuse that, but it's very, very powerful. It is very, very good for America. It's good for the world, I think, to have American leadership in this respect. And it's a challenging question about how we keep that. So I think about several uh, reasons why we might have a good shot at keeping this great attribute that we have. Some of the fundamentals are we're a market economy without capital controls and a society that believes in the rule of law. The Chinese have a huge economy, it's quasi-market, and that's the end of that list for them, right? And, and so it's difficult, I think, for a rival currency to displace the United States if it does not have those other features. But they could choose to develop those other features. There's another aspect that I think is important, which is the one we've been kind of focusing on, and that's the, the technology behind it. So I think the idea of programmable money is gonna be really, really important feature, and it's like the latest innovation in money. And money has 
because you know better than I do how, how much it has changed, how it's evolved, how new technology has changed what we use and how we use it for from the first time anybody conceived of the idea. So this is, to me, the latest really important innovation. I want the U.S. dollar to have that capability. It's not clear to me that a stable coin can't play that role. Privately issued stable coins might very well be able to play that role. But these are some of the things that I'm thinking about. Look, I do think that the Chinese watching what's happening to Russia right now, and it has to dramatically elevate what was already a high priority, which was for them to figure out a way to be less dependent on the dollar for international uh, trade flows. And frankly, the authoritarians and the dictators and the bullies and the would-be hegemons around the world, they're all thinking this through. And we better realize that you know the dollar is it's going to be under that pressure. And so mm. I, I want to make sure we're doing everything we can to hold on to our position. So the way I tend to look at these things is like to break it down into two elements of the dollar's leadership. One is, I think, the language that you were using, which is that it really is this, this thing, this, this, this unit of account, this store of value that the whole world wants. It's the reference point everyone has. And that's almost like an expression of values beyond just the functionality of it. It's a connection to the United States. And I think that's a really powerful thing that the United States really would just do ill-advised never to lose. The other part of that U.S. dollar leadership, though, is the structure of the financial system with the power that U.S. banks have to essentially act as intermediators, to be gatekeepers. And in fact, it is one of the means by which America is able to impose sanctions on people from around the world because that is the, the, the vehicle for that. I think what's going to be really challenging is whether or not that second part can be sustained and therefore what the U.S. could do to embrace the first part. And you talked about some of these issues, the rule of law and the and I think privacy is a key point here. The other one is this openness. And so open innovation is something that and a permissionless and also pro-privacy model could support, which to me speaks to the idea of a, of a very constructive stablecoin environment promoting dollars around the world, as opposed to one that has all these gatekeepers involved in it. Where is the discussion around this? Or are we too early to be getting there? I'm trying to get to the point, like, is there an awareness that this is the sort of trade-off that we're going to have to be dealing with? And then what are your thoughts on that? I think there's a growing awareness, but it's got a long way to go. Look, I, I think it's something we're going to wrestle with. It's hard to imagine in, in a world where we have a purely disintermediated peer-to-peer -peer capability with privacy. It's hard to imagine that doesn't displace some of the, certainly the intermediaries, it's going to displace them. And that is our mechanism, as you point out, for imposing the kind of regimes we can impose on countries that we have to. So. Uh, is there an inevitability about a change here in dollar dominance? There might be, but we've got to embrace the innovation and embrace the the possibilities that it that it presents. So this is going to be a, a fascinating journey. So I couldn't agree more with everything you both are saying about, uh, but but I actually think the situation is far more acute than I think we're portraying it thus far. As uh, something I've been talking about for a couple of years, with the vantage point that I had when I was at the forum. And I think that the challenges, the fact that we've had so many U.S. banks exit correspondent banking relationships, because uh, they've had to, because they haven't really had a choice. I think the most recent that I can remember was Citi exiting Mexico consumer businesses, right, selling off one of its Mexico affiliates and just leaving that altogether because of the complexity of operating and creating relationships here, in part because of AML and KYC requirements, in part because of U.S. law requirements. China has no such limitations. And so when I look at the China Investment Corridor into Africa, 
it is simply a matter of time before there's going to be, there's so many headlines, you know, last year about the debt traps. Modi was trying to exit Zambia, Uganda. It is just a matter of time before inevitably the, the need for lending, the need for engagement, the need for capital, I think is going to supplant concerns around some of the privacy and other kinds of things that we're talking about here. Or China will mitigate some of those in a minor way, like a little bit, you know, make some progress, I suppose, towards what we call more traditional American values that are acceptable to some of these countries. And I don't think you unring that bell. We're already seeing so much activity engagement with Chinese, uh, with the digital RMB in Myanmar, uh, which is, is, I think, something not enough people are paying attention to, quite, quite frankly. Uh, this new situation or, you know, the current situation, rather, it's not really new at all. It's quite historical in its roots, I think, is really spotlighting some of these things. It's a pretty scary situation. I suspect that a big part of the motivation of the Chinese government in developing a digital currency is the surveillance power that it gives them and not beyond surveillance, right? The ability to program that money and have just unbelievable control over their population. And when you can control where and how a person is able to spend money, boy, that's, that's getting pretty close to complete control. And I think that that capability that is a big part of their motivation is something that, that the world's not going to lose sight of. And as Michael alluded to, the, the set of values that cause a lot of people around the world to want to hold dollars and want to use dollars, I, I think it kind of works in the exact opposite way with respect to a currency that was designed in order to be able to surveil and control one's population. And yeah, maybe they find a way to tweak that for certain applications and in certain places, but will people really trust them? I don't know. I'm not sure anybody does. And I, I get your concern, but I don't know if people will ever get past that motivation. Well, Senator Tony, these are truly, you know, momentous questions to be asking. And so thank you for allowing us to put you on the spot and, and address yeah. them. Looking forward to further conversations with you about all these issues. So thank you very much for being with us. Once again, Sheila, as always, thank you as well. And thank you to all of you listeners and viewers. Uh, that's all we have time for for now on Money Reimagined. Bye for now. You've been listening to Coindesk's Money Reimagined. This episode featured Sheila Warren, Michael J. Casey, and guest Senator Pat Toomey. Our theme song is Shepherd. This episode was produced and edited by Michelle Mousseau, with additional production support from Eleanor Paul and announcements by Adam B. Levine. Have any questions or comments? Please send us an email at podcasts at coindesk.com, subject line, Money Reimagined, or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. And from all of us at Coindesk and the Money Reimagined team, thanks for listening.